maximum profit in the bulk wine for, for uh, U.S. wineries is still here in the U.S. We drink much more than we make, and if we didn't buy a drop around the world, we we would still need more wine uh, because we make we make le- much less than we drink. So we're still a very good target market. Hi guys, welcome to the Wine, Whiskey and Weed show. My guest today is Steve Dorfman from Ciari and today we're going to talk about how to maximize your bulk wine and private label business profits and which are the top accounts in the US market that buy bulk wine and private label wines. Welcome Steve. Could you please tell our audience about yourself and Ciari? Uh, good morning. Um, so uh, I'm Steve Dorfman. Uh, I've uh, been in the wine business for the last uh, 37 years. And uh, as a winemaker and grape grower, and and uh, then back in 2007, I started uh, working um, with uh, Ciotti Company, a company that I had worked with for, for the last for 25 years before. So um, it was uh, an easy transition to uh, come over to a side of the business that I had uh, used these guys uh, very effectively over my career. Um, and uh, you know, the role of of the brokerage company, uh, as we use it in in the wine business, is really more of an expansion joint. Uh, if you think about it, uh, if you look on a, a bridge over a highway, uh, you see there's a gap in the bridge that's usually filled with something uh, rubbery or whatever, so that when the heat and cold of the of the temperature uh, makes the concrete expand or contract, the the road doesn't fall apart. So a lot of people use the brokerage as a place to help fill their gaps uh, uh, between their production and their sales. Uh, some wineries um, uh, just make bulk wine, and some wineries or negotiants just buy bulk wine. They don't have any winery at all. So we help fill the, uh, the gaps in, in the process um, so that people don't have to just go uh, start a vineyard, plant the vineyard, grow the grapes, make the wine, sell it and, and have a, a five-year or 10-year process just to get their, their brand out there. They can usually enter the market very quickly. Super. So great analogy of the bridge. Uh, I think I think it makes sense. You know, you always want to have a great relation uh, with a broker and, you know, who can, who can help you in uh, times when you need. Uh, so fantastic there. I did not know that you were a winemaker as well, Steve. Yeah, yeah. Were you? Like which, which uh, winery? I, I, I made wine at Fetcher Vineyards um, for many years. And uh, then I worked. For, then I worked for Brown Foreman, uh, who bought Fetcher in 1992. Um, you know, the other thing I'll say about the the brokerage and Ciotti in particular is that we have offices around the world uh, because uh, it's always a harvest somewhere. Uh, so you have uh, Southern Hemisphere and Northern Hemisphere offices. We have a, an office in Canada, which brings in a lot of concentrate and uh, and wines from South America. We have an office in France. Uh, and Germany, and they split up Europe. Um, mainly Germany stays focused on Germany and uh, and uh, Moldova and things like that, while France handles Italy, Spain, the UK, Scandinavia. They also have an office in South Africa, Argentina, Chile, and um, uh, Australia, and uh, a new office in, in Shanghai. Fantastic. So, are, uh, does that like are you uh, statistically like the top three? Uh, wine brokerage firm in the world? We're the largest wine brokerage uh, company in the world. And we move, when, when we move globally, we move about 500 million liters of wine uh, are brokered between uh, the 4,000 wineries that we're in and out of around the world. Wow. So 500 million liters a year. Yes. Yes. 
about three approximately oh, numbers. That goes up and down depending upon uh, when, you know, how the market's going and availability, but that's about the average. Uh-huh. Got it, got it. So uh, great. So uh, I think uh, let's let's try and uh, have some tactical questions here, Steve. So you know, let's let's uh, on a scenario. Let's say you end up with half a million liters uh, excess wine. You know, if you're a winery, uh, and because of the vintage change, you just want to uh, you know try to find an outlet for that. So what are the uh, routes that a winery can take? Uh, you know, let's say they have half a million liters sitting in their tank. Where do they start, basically? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, you know, it's really, a lo- there's a lot of factors that go into that. You know, it, and the first factor is what's the market like? Uh, and, and, and you know, currently the market here in California is very difficult um, because we have a lot of uh, bulk wine that's left over from, say, the 17, 18 vintage. And now 19 vintage looks uh, decent. It's not uh, necessarily going to be a bumper crop, but it, it looks very uh, average uh, to slightly above average, depending upon the area that you're in. So if a winery is sitting on a half million liters of extra wine, and it happens to be a variety that's in demand, then um, uh, things come down to price. So for example, if you have a half million liters of Napa Cabernet, and you're willing to sell that Napa Cabernet at $20 a gallon, when the market up to this point has been $40 a gallon, then that's one way to get it. Okay, is that the price and there's a demand for Napa Cabernet. If you happen to have, um, say, some uh, say Lodi or Central Valley uh, Pinot Noir, uh, where we have ample supplies of that, or Pinot Grigio, where we have ample supplies of that, and you have a half a million liters that you need to make tank space for, uh, and there's very little market for it, then you have some very tough choices to make. Um, one is that you can, um, you know, the worst possible is to send it off for distillation, which uh, basically uh, covers your costs of trucking. You don't get anything and you've basically wrote, written off the wine uh, at that point. Uh, then then you a little more expensive there is vinegar stock, um, but that too uh, is a very low price. And then you start getting into lower price guys that are able to move it through large blends um, that they have uh, bag and box programs, etc. After that, uh, I'm moving up the chain from the lowest to to the best opportunity would be a private label, uh, an entrepreneurial winemaker, or your own winemaker, which would have contact with people that could do uh, private label programs. And if they uh, got it, if you came up with a- so like people like you know uh, ninety plus sellers or Cameron Hughes or negotiants. Yeah, basically. yeah, ne- negotiants. So there's plenty of other wineries that are are, are rolling around the uh, winemakers that are rolling around that have uh, good relationships with the Trader Joes of the world, uh, or, or yeah, and so they can make uh, make uh, the private labels for them. So that's moving up the chain. Your best is private label, and then you move down the chain, and your worst possible outcome would be distillation. Perfect, perfect, great. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, coming back to, I, I think that also uh, brings up, I mean, when you when you have already mentioned that your best and the last, that also uh, aligns with the profitability, which was coming, uh, which was my next question, I mean, right? So you make most amount of profit when you take the private label approach, and I guess uh, least amount when you just gave out your, you know, worst option, right? I, I assume, is that, uh, is that, uh, fair analogy? Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, I mean, if you're looking to maximize your profits on the bulk wine, I think there's probably one other area that may be even higher than the, uh, than the negotiant area is that a winery 
that has a, a existing program with good branding and a high price point would need some extra wine to fill uh, increased needs. And um, got it. So, like a winery buying another winery's juice to fill demand. That's correct. That's correct. And that, that happens all the time. You know, the uh, the the wine brokerage business is a, a little bit like the soft underbelly of the wine business in the fact that. You know, winery trades with another winery, but this is very common practice um, uh, that's not seen by the, the consumer. Um, so, you know, if you're looking to maximize the profits of bulk wine, then I think you have to pay attention to a lot of the drivers uh, uh, as to how you're making that wine. If you were making that wine um, for your own label and you just had a little bit too much, then you're probably going to be making it exactly as you would be uh, if, you, if you're barrel aging it uh, that would be your normal process. Um, but if you're just making bulk wine for the bulk market, usually you're trying to maximize the profit by not adding as many inputs as possible. You try to get your fruit at optimal ripeness. You try to uh, maximize things at harvest um, to make the best possible bulk wine, but you're probably not adding oak or, uh, or other um, things to it until such time as the client might ask for it or the client's willing to take it uh, and, and correct, you, correct. So I think you're you're basically keeping it as open as you can for a customized uh, request that's when, when a that's, client has. That's correct. So as, as much as you can, that's the way to maximize is to keep it open. Got it. And uh, like, where do you see uh, an opportunity right now? Uh, do you see like still U.S. Uh, for U.S. wineries, still it's best to sell bulk wine internally, or you, you think that China or like some country which is which needs you know, which has a, a bad vintage uh, is, is a good opportunity. Like where, where is the maximum profit right now if you're, if you're in the bulk wine? The maximum profit in the bulk wine for, for uh, U.S. wineries is still here in the U.S. We drink um, much more than we make. And if we didn't uh, buy a drop uh, from, from uh, around the world, we, we would still need more wine um, uh, because we make, we make le much less than we drink. So we're still a very good target market. Absolutely. So, uh, Steve, uh, just, you know, as, as, as this is completely like, you know, some wineries are 100% focused on the business of bulk wine, which is completely different ball game as, as uh, we know, uh, you know, then you have to have a different uh, metrics and whatnot. So uh, for the bulk wine, I guess, uh, who are, you know, who are this uh, bulk wine movers and shakers? Like if you can please uh, name like just sort of uh, four to five you know, some of the leading bulk wine uh, buyers for the U.S. market that someone can at least, uh, you know, uh, just for the knowledge or attention, which they may just approach them. Yeah, I mean, in, in the U.S. market, you, you have a, a fair amount of, uh, of folks. Uh, you mentioned uh, 90 plus sellers. Um, uh, Kevin Mira, he, uh, he has a very good program. Cameron Hughes, which is now owned by Vintage Wine Estates. They have a very good program uh, of, of buying bulk wine. Um, the wine group uh, continues to be a very good uh, buyer of, of bulk wine. Accolade, uh, which is uh, a company that's owned by um, uh, the Carlisle Group, uh, uh, China's uh, division. Uh, they are big players in both Australian wine as well as Californian wine, and they have a very good sales uh, program into the U.K. So they're a very uh, good, good player in that. Uh, in Europe, you have uh, companies like Le Grand Chez de France, um, ZGM, Export Union in Germany, um, Globus in Denmark, 
but then you, you have uh, the Nordic markets, which are, are big drinkers of wine, uh, very large consumers. Um, it all goes through a monopoly and a tender process, which can be challenging um, uh, to get in there. But uh, once you're in there, if the, if the consumer is buying, you only have one store to sell to, which is the monopoly uh, in each country. And, um, and they drink a significant amount of wine because wine is seen as a uh, uh, lesser alcohol product versus vodka or something else that they've tried to manage people down to. Uh, it's looked at as very uh, much more organic. So organic wine is very big there. Um, so you have a lot of uh, opportunities into those Nordic countries. Like I said, it can be challenging to get in. But once you're in, you can, we have tenders that have been going on for 25 years. Got it, got it. So uh, I think uh, just on my knowledge, like a basic knowledge, if I was in the bulk wine business, I would really, I would think that contract bottlers would be the biggest bet, you know, like uh, accolades or people who are actually uh, the fulfillment houses for the Walmarts of the world. Uh, that's what I would assume uh, because they would be the contract bottlers and uh, would be sort of the, the front line for the big chains. Uh, is that true? Yeah, I mean, they are, they are the front line for the big chains. But remember, the, a lot of these companies are also selling their own brand. And so, um, you know, in, versus a pure negotiant type of thing or somebody that's buying for their uh, private label brands. Um, and, and they have their own brands. There can be a conflict uh, because they want to sell their own brand versus someone else's brand. Uh, but they also can be the big buyers and can absorb a lot of wine uh, at the time. So for somebody who's got bulk wine, going to these companies uh, that have big programs um, is, uh, is a benefit. So somebody like Delicato, which would be a fantastic uh, place to, to sell your bulk wine to uh, for eat, for both uh, brands like their Bodabas, but they also have big programs into Trader Joe's like the, the Moon series. Uh, Venetian Moon, Harvest Moon, that was all done as a private label for, for that. So so Delicato could be a, an excellent choice for somebody looking to sell their bulk wine. Got it, got it. So again, uh, one more, one more, like uh, a little tip, which I, I would do, like, you know, I was I was also in the in the game of private labels. So, so I would like find like, let's say top fastest growing wine brands, uh, you know, which are private label. And by the looks of it, you can easily see which are private and which are not, right? Like, as you, as you know, 90 plus sellers, I've watched their growth so i would really find out which are the private label spirits which are the private label wine brands and then do you think approaching them saying hey uh, i also sell pinot noir from oregon and you know here are some samples i would love to blah 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 so i think that that can be a way to uh get into those uh private label wine uh brands because number one they are in a super growth mode and they are looking for more juice yeah absolutely and, you know, I, I think that as you experienced it, or you can tell me, but, you know, in your private label experience was that uh, um, the ability to have the relationship with that retailer and that um, uh, wholesaler uh, network uh, was, was probably very good for you to be able to, uh, you know, source and supply a, a brand that becomes a treasure hunt for the consumer uh, if they're looking for something different than a brand that they see every day. Yep, absolutely. So uh, uh, for on the restaurant, Steve, uh, you know, again, this is uh, there are a lot of myths uh, because the, the the data is not out there. You know, as we all know, bulk wine is a is a 
sort of a uh, hidden market. Um, so for the restaurant chains, like, do they really, is it even worth uh, considering, let's say, Olive Gardens of the world uh, uh, for the private label program? Like, are the volumes just there or people are just doing it for the sake of relationship? Let's say I sell my brand and just to have that relationship with that customer, I will offer them a private label. You know, I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think you, you, you do get into a little competition with the branded guys because they um, will go to an Olive Garden. Uh, you know, Fester used to sell a lot of wine to Olive Garden and um, and uh, Bonefish. Uh, let, me, let me rephrase it this way. that Does, does Olive Garden have 100% only private label supplier? Like just the guy who makes private label for them? No. No, they they, they, they have uh, their own brands. They have uh, private label brands, and they have uh, the, the branded goods uh, because they have to offer everything to their consumer. Um, and, and but when you say their own brands, uh, that means they they have a private label wine supplier, right? Yeah, for they, that they own may, brand. They may have a private label wine supplier, or they may have um, a a uh, branded supplier that will make a private label for. Them. Oh, all right. Like an got it. Like an exclusivity brand. Correct. But you know, and then you have you have a couple of concepts that have popped up uh, a little bit, or at least one big one, like Cooper's Hawk, uh, is uh, is a, a restaurant uh, chain, and, you know, a small chain, but uh, but one that makes their own wine. They have their own wine division. They bring the wine in. They bottle it. Uh, they they have a, a big thing, and and it's just theirs for their uh, consumers uh, there in, in in their restaurants. So that's a, kind of a different twist on on it but uh but they're, they're growing very fast and uh, and very successful got it got it like I'm, I'm i'm a big fan of private label and bulk business to be honest you know uh it's good to have uh, your own brand for sure it, it it's a feel-good thing but the you know the real fundamentals are still in 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 this side of business because you know uh it, it does bring a stability because end of the day if olive garden is going to you know be successful in marketing the private label brand that you've created you will be a successful winery uh, so i think it is a good good uh, model where i think wineries at least can pay attention to and compare other uh, bulk wine suppliers on how stable their business is so they can get a feel of it what's your take on that like what's what what, what, what do you think like because people always think that bulk wine is like a cheap uh, side of the business or not so fancy business but in fact what, where I come from, especially from doing the bulk wine show in three countries, it's in fact the bigger and the stable and the larger uh, foundational companies are built around bulk wine and contract bottling. Yeah, I, I listen. I look at the the whole thing as the, the legs on the stool, you know. And the more legs you have, uh, uh, the the sta- more stable the stool is. So um, you know, when somebody is is presenting their brand, they're doing that for many reasons. But uh, consumers, and especially consumers. Here uh, in the U.S., um, uh, we're we're a branded uh, type of uh, consumer. We like to know that. Now, there's also a certain consumer that has acts there would like to find the treasure hunt and look at that. And I think the success of a company like Trader Joe's is that. Whether you're talking about um, cereal or you're talking about wine or beer, uh, having uh, choices there that uh, and it's the same companies maybe making the same product, but uh, consumers like uh, the price benefit. They like the, the ability to find something different that some other people don't have. Um, so it, it, it really depends on the consumer uh, for that. Um, and, but, you know, if a winery is a good-sized winery, they need to have vineyard side, 
covered. They need to have branded side covered. They need to have both sides covered. And, uh, and that makes for a much more stable uh, business model. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, uh, Steve, uh, let's bounce uh, uh, here and there, um, especially China. I want to know a little bit about your experience. Uh, I think you guys, you guys did set up an office there about almost two to three years ago, and you're, you are really uh, learning and having a, a base there and, you know, uh, already do uh, some decent amount of business. What's your uh, take on China? If you can just give a little overview on, on you know, some opportunities you see, if there are in China, uh, for our audience, please. Sure. I mean, you know, China is, is a, a, an up-and-coming and continues to grow uh, type of market. It may have slowed a little bit uh, as of recent um, uh, time, uh, you know, but it, it's, it's a very hot economy, uh, drove a lot of business. And, um, and you know, we see that uh, there are a new drinking society from, from the standpoint that they are very open to any place that's known for making wine. So uh, whether they were buying French wines for a while or whether they were, would switch over to uh, Australian or Chilean, there's, in some respects, not as much loyalty uh, to a country or to a place. But uh, when there is uh, a desire, there's a tremendous amount of sales and countries and companies need to be ready uh, because they can absorb a tremendous amount of wine. Um, and Australia's had the, uh, the best success as of recent. But it all came on the, on the, in a sense, on the backs of the, the French who uh, got in there very early and, uh, and really worked on, on developing the consumer palate. And as the middle class uh, continued to explode, um, uh, they became more wine drinkers. Uh, so Australia and Chile, uh, both of which have free trade with China, um, is making for a very good uh, a bit of their business at the moment. Um, I think that... Uh, I think that China looks at free trade as a real opportunity uh, for people and for export countries or for countries that must export like Australia or Chile uh, because they make significantly more wine than they drink. Um, it, it's, it's, gonna, it's really important to have those, those free trade. I, I, I may have a very basic question, Steve. I mean, really, it can be a silly question. Like, let's say uh, U.S. and Chile uh, have, a, a, you know, a bulk wine trade agreement and I ship bulk wine. Uh, let's say I ship Napa, obviously Napa is not going to be considered in bulk wine, but let's, let's assume I ship some uh, high volume, you know, uh, wine to Chile. And can that uh, go, uh, that same wine go from Chile to uh, China? Not, with, not without the tariff. Uh, not without the tariff. Because, uh, because okay, it's, so it's, it's basically... Based on the country of origin. So you can't blend it again. Let's say I send 40% and I blend 60% Chile. And then it becomes a Chilean wine, or is there a hack to the system? There is uh, not, not that I know of. I mean, everybody seems to follow. <laughs> uh, everybody seems to follow the convention of country of origin, and the laws uh, okay. are there for that. So they're, they're not. I don't. We don't partake, or nor do I know of any any hack to do that. <laughs> All right. So especially uh, with our friends uh, in Argentina, I think they they are also investing a lot in China, as as you may have seen. Um, I think they are also one of the fast-growing, uh, you know, imports out there. Yeah, yeah, Argentina. Uh, which, which they, they, they do. Yep. doing a fair amount. Um, you know, Spain might look to be a little shorter this year, so we can see a lot of Argentinian and Chilean wine heading over to Europe um, uh, for for those things as well as China. Yes. 
Got it. Got it. So which which grape varietals overall are you seeing, uh, you know, grow in 2020 uh, as far as, you know, the demand yeah, on a macro see, level go? We still see good demand for Chardonnay um, and Cabernets uh, are good. It's still great demand for New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. You have to get, you know, take your hat off to those guys for maintaining that for a huge length of yeah, time. Yeah, they have done a fantastic job. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, super. Yeah, very high price. Uh, very good quality, uh, very good producers, um, and uh, and really uh, maximize that the, the scarcity of, of the resource. Um, I think uh, is is Sauvignon Blanc still one of the fastest import uh, varietals grow, from, from, growing in U.S. from New Zealand? Yeah, I mean there, there's been some import of, of Chilean uh, Sauvignon Blanc, but uh, but not a, not a huge amount by comparison to the New Zealand. And there's been some increase in domestic Sauvignon Blanc production and, and consumption. But still, New Zealand is the is the desired one of the day. A little like rosé, uh, we see good good uh, uh, options and opportunities for rosé, but not for white Zinfandel necessarily. I think that uh, the and, and really not for that style. And then more the Provence style um, is what people want. So a rosé of Pinot Noir uh, or Grenache or something like that is much seen much better than white Zinfandel these days. But always remember white Zin. Uh, launched uh, the wine boom here, in my opinion, uh, many moons ago. So um, uh, we should always take our hats off to White Zin for creating a lot of consumers in this country. Absolutely. I think it's just a matter of one rapper singing another varietal and then boom. <laughs> <laughs> Anything's possible. Anything's possible. Uh, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, Hollywood does influence, uh, you know, some varietals. Sure, sure, sure. You know, but we have we have seen a, a decrease for the demand in Zinfandel and things like Syrah uh, over the time. But um, but how's how's Malbec doing? Like, are, is it had a good run? Is it is it dried up now? Like, is is it on a steady or decline? Uh, it's not on a decline. I think actually Malbec is probably holding its own, maybe growing. I think what happened though, um, in the in the grand scheme, was that Argentina became very short, and it got very expensive. And, uh, and, and people were still drinking Malbec, so uh, at least here in California, we started planting Malbec and in some other countries. And so now they have their own domestic consumption, uh, production and consumption that they can use, and uh, Argentina is going to have to kind of fight their way back in. They still have great Malbec, that's not changed, but in terms of uh, the stability uh, of, uh, of the Argentinian economy, uh, the transportation costs are higher. So their prices are great, but by the time that you add transportation, duties, taxes, et cetera, you, you can still produce it probably uh, equal in, in other countries. Got it. Fantastic. So just one last question, Stephen, then uh, we'll just come to the close to this. Uh, which are the, let's say, top three, if we talked about varietals, which are the top three countries where you see a massive demand uh, where wineries can sort of pay attention to? Um, well, let's see. The, uh, certainly there's still demand in China. Um, for that, I would say uh, there's good things. There's still demand here in the U.S. Uh, for other countries coming, whether that's Chilean wine, Argentinian wine, Australian wine. There's still good demand uh, for that, uh, and as well as European wines. Um, it, forget the tariffs uh, and, and all of that, because at some point that will go away or change. Um, so I just look at consumers and, and what people like. Um, there would be good demand uh, for South Africa, but they suffered a little bit, uh, like Argentina, um, but based on the fact that they were. No, South Africa. You mean you mean demand of South African, 
uh, wines? Yeah, demand for South African wines, things like Chenin Blanc, um, you know, Sauvignon Blanc that, that uh, you know, we, we, we stopped making here in the U.S. We just don't grow a lot of Chenin Blanc anymore. Although I do hear some people are putting Chenin Blanc back in the ground. You know, uh, I think one of the things that happens is uh, they, people try to follow the consumer and, uh, and we end up being a monoculture. So we have a lot of extra Cabernet now because people planted Cabernet because Cabernet was going to be the hot variety. It is hot and it's still good, but we have a lot of it. And so people start looking for what is an option for that. And whether that's Argentinian Malbec or South African uh, Chenin Blanc, um, uh, people are especially seemingly uh, millennials or the younger parts of the, the drinking public uh, are looking for uh, to get out there and explore something that their parents didn't have in their cellar. So, so they look for something different. Which retailers do you think, Steve, uh, really capitalize and watch their consumers very closely and are the sort of the first mover? You know, like if, if I see a, a 25K display in Trader Joe's of something different, uh, am I fair to assume they are watching their consumers really close? Or which retailer do you think can wineries pay attention to to see the next move? Well, I think I think certainly the Trader Joe's or the uh, Aldi's of the world uh, have, have staked a claim there. I think that uh, Total Wine here has done a fantastic job of really, uh, you know, almost educating consumers beyond where they, they were and, and bringing people in uh, to their stores uh, to develop that. I think that Whole Foods and some of the uh, other, other um, you know, supermarket type of, you know, food and wine retailers uh, are doing a great job of, of kind of developing either brands or taking brands and then driving them through, like, uh, for example, O'Neill makes a, a brand uh, called Line 39, and in Whole Foods, that's and displayed there uh, to be shown as a Sauvignon Blanc that you want to pair with the food. So I, I think that different stores have different concepts, um, and, uh, and, and really, as those concepts develop, they, 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 they bring more consumers into the wine business. Steve, that's so great. Thank you so much for being with us today. I know our listeners will find a lot of value in this. So my takeaway in this is if you want to focus on the profitability of bulk wine, these are the two places you really need to pay attention to first. First is sell the winery that is really looking for that bulk wine. And second place is the private label entrepreneurs. The private label brands are always looking for quality bulk wine. Thank you again for joining the Wine, Whiskey and Beat Show. See you next week. Oh,